Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Support for Away With Words comes from Mosey Online Backup. Mosey protects your valuable computer files against data loss from hard drive crashes, viruses, theft, and other disasters. Find out more at mozy.com. Listening to Away with Words. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. Martha, I've always wanted to know why can't the names of computers and cars be better? They come up with these awful, boring brand names, these product names, just not interesting really to me. I know that they're trying to sell a product, but here's this there's a whole category of names out there that they could draw from that's, that's far more interesting. Bird names. Bird names. Bird names. Listen to this. Try this one Lazuli Bunting. That's L-A-Z-U-L-I, bunting, B-U-N-T-I-N-G. It's a good name. That's the name of a bird. It's a blue finch, and it, it, it's lazily bunting. Well, that sounds like a, a character in a, you know, Bride's Head Revisited or something, it's, doesn't it? It's, it's festive. It's fun. There's a, something, you know, bunting is what you put up when you have parades and celebrations and somebody gets elected and somebody wins the prize and... Lazily is a great foreign word that invokes like the deepest of blues, and it's yeah. just, it's a nice word. Okay. It's a blue finch. Okay. It's an interesting word. My whole premise here is that IBM and Dell and all these other manufacturers, I guess Lenovo and Dell and Apple and whoever, should try something besides uh, strings of numbers and letters for their products. Here's another one. The Northern Beardless Terranulette. Wait, now, I'm not going to be driving a northern beardless tarantula. <laughs> well, I'm what sorry. about you? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, there's, a, there's some inspiration to be had here, even if they don't take the words wholesale. Um, the northern beardless tarantula is, is a tropical flycatcher. To me, though, it sounds kind of like a Canadian toddler in the midst of his terrible twos, right? Because mm. he's northern and Canadian. Beardless means he's young, and tarantulette means he's a kind of tyrant. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I uh-huh. can see the commercial yeah, Bob yeah. Seeger playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about this one? The black necked stilt. Black necked stilt? Yeah, it's also called a lawyer bird. Does it ring any bells? Or the blue stocking. Oh. All three of these are great common names for a kind of long-legged, long-beaked water bird. Yeah, but I, I, I just can't imagine being on the freeway and being rear-ended <laughs> by a lawyer bird. That's <laughs> that is a that is an accident you're going to lose. You're going to pay for that one. <laughs> well, speaking of birds and tweeting. We invite you. Did I really say that? We invite you to follow us on Twitter. You can find us under the name Wayward. And if you have a question about language, call us. The number's one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Ann from Dallas. Hello, Ann. Welcome. Hi, Ann. What's going on? Well, I, I've grown up in Dallas, and I've um, moved away, lived all over the world, and came back, and for some reason or another, I just started to notice a phrase, and I was wondering if this phrase was unique to Texas or if its origins were from some other part of the South, and it's the phrase, do what? Um, for instance, there'll be four of us sitting at a nice restaurant, and the waiter will come up, and he will be telling us what the um, entrees are and everything, 
and one of the people will not be listening, and it'll go do what? And I'm looking at them going like, they don't, they didn't do anything. And it's kind of like they use this phrase as if it's, um, instead of saying like, what'd you say, or huh, which would mm-hmm. be the more obvious, huh, but I'm wondering if, it, if it's just unique to Texas. Um, I hear it from people that from the rural areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, you have, and, and Texas, you said you've, you're from Texas originally. Mm-hmm. You've come back after being away for a while. Right. And it, it's right there up with fixing. I'm fixing to do something. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, not su- I'm not surprised. They're, they're both Southernisms, that's for sure. You'll find do what is spread from say, the uppermost reaches of North Carolina, maybe even into Maryland and Virginia and down through the south and Alabama, Louisiana, and, and, and it, it makes its home in Texas, too. So that's, it's definitely something you are going to hear of from one end of the state, as big as it is, to the other. Right, and I, because um, I noticed some friends of mine from Tennessee who had moved to Texas use it, and I thought, huh, well, maybe it, it actually was spread further, further away from Texas, um, but, yeah, it's a bit annoying. <laughs> Oh, it's annoying, is it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, let me ask you, do do you say or do you know anyone who says, come again? I was talking to some friends because we were asking, um, we were asking each other, do you ever hear anybody, anybody say, do what? And then a couple of times they said, come again, but come again takes too long. And I think that's <laughs> the way everybody swallows everything. Yeah. Um, do what? Just kind of, and it's just like a do what? It's almost like a duo or, you know, a doo-wop, you know, a doo-bop or uh-huh. a doo-wop. Right, right. It, right. You'll often do find what? it written in a very casual speech as if it's one word. It's, it's said so fast and so blended together that some people mistake it for a single word instead of two words. You know, when I think of do what, I think of Gomer Pyle. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Well, there. Okay, then that'd be about Alabama, I suppose. Uh huh. Sergeant, do what? <laughs> well, I but, like you know, it. but 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 Anne, this is a widespread expression. It's it's very idiomatic, and by that I mean, if you try to break it down into its components, words D O and W H A T, it's not likely to make sense. You've got to treat those two words together as a single thing, a single item, unbroken. And then it has a meaning, and then it has a role, and it's some relevance, and it's and it's very serviceable. It does its job. It is a way of saying what or what did you mean, what did you say, or or come again, or pardon, or how's that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very useful. So, yeah, and maybe just pretend like it's from French or something. Exactly. <laughs> <Do> what? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've always think of it as the the brother or sister to saying how come instead of why. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because the it's another way of saying, uh, you know, a, a two-word phrase where, or one word will do. Okay, great. Well, Anne, thank you very much for calling. You bet. All thank right. You. Thank you. Take care of yourself, Anne. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, if you've got a regional expression that you want to learn more about or you've got something that you heard people say that makes you curious, give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. And if you want to talk more about Do What, join us on the discussion forums at waywardradio.org slash discussion. Or you can always email us. That address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, my name's Troy Tippin. Where are you calling from, Troy? I'm calling from San Diego. Well, welcome to the show, Troy. What can we do for you? Well, actually, I was uh, curious where the phrase, like a duck on a June bug, originated. Did somebody say that about you? No, actually, it's a phrase <laughs> I've used for years. Uh-huh. And recently, I had a couple of people... Uh, challenge me on the statement. Challenge you? What do you mean? <laughs> they didn't believe there were such things as ducks and June bugs or what? Well, one person was my boss, 
and he had heard me say the phrase a few times, and this time he said, ducks don't like June bugs. <laughs> really? And, and I went, hmm, really? <laughs> and he says, no, nah, actually, I'm just pulling your leg. I have no clue whether they're like June bugs or not. <laughs> City boys, what do they know? Yeah. yeah. Well, Troy, tell me, what um, context would you use this phrase in? Um, typically, when... It's a situation where it requires immediate response or quick action, that type of situation. Like if I'm doing something and, and I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll get right on it like a duck on a June bug, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. It means fast or, or with energy, right? Uh, yeah, without, okay. without wasting any time at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. ducks are very efficient. And they love June bugs. They do. They do indeed. Your boss is wrong on that, Troy. Well, he was teasing me. Oh, okay. We we have followed up that conversation with, you know, I've done a little bit of homework on this duck on a June bug thing. (laughs) Uh I went to the web and I Googled uh, where the phrase originated. Mm -hmm. So you haven't tested this in real life then? You haven't gotten yourself a duck and a June bug and... No, but it, re- it caused me to reflect on a childhood event where across the street from where I lived, there was a family that had a couple of ducks, and their ducks loved snails. Uh-huh. And I saw them eat these snails like they were a delicacy that they couldn't have enough of. Sure, like a baby eating blueberries. Right. I think we should get the guys at Mythbusters to test the bugs you know, test the June bugs and the and the, the ducks to see if it's true. That's a great idea. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I had a follow-up conversation with the same boss after doing a little bit of homework, and we were just kind of reminiscing about our sequence of conversations. And he said, you know, I happen to know somebody who is a duck expert. He's a hunter, and he's been hunting them for years, and he knows all about ducks. Mm-hmm. If anybody knows anything about ducks and June bugs, this is the guy. So I'm sitting mm-hmm. in his office, and he makes a phone call to him. And his his friend says, well, certainly they love June bugs, especially in the spring when the, when the June bugs come out. <laughs> they're big old fat things, June bugs, right? For those those who might not know, June bugs, have, there's a lot of meat on them, them well, them legs, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I've never tried. <laughs> they're not for me, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if yeah, I were yeah. a bird, I might not be so discriminating. Right, right. They're big, juicy bugs. Well, let me tell you, I've seen June bugs that are big, and they're about as big as, say, as a, a ripe walnut. Pretty big. That's a ripe huge. walnut? Yeah, big stuff. Yeah, oh my they can gosh. be big. So you you know, unless the ducks get to them, then they don't have a chance. <laughs> well, and then that's that's another part of that image then, that, that it takes more than one bite or one nibble to get, <laughs> to get that June bug all sure. the way down. So, so, yeah, you're talking about the very picture of eagerness and alacrity. Right, right. <laughs> well, Troy, thanks a lot for calling. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. All Thank right. you, Troy. Bye-bye. 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 The number is one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. And you can try us on the discussion forum at waywardradio.org slash discussion. Martha, more on bird names. I'm not going to let this go. Okay. <laughs> when you start to look into bird names, one of the things you find out is that the bird names have changed. For example, a lot of birds used to be named for the person who discovered them or the person who made them known. These are called commemorative names. So Ravoli's Hummingbird or Bancroft's Night Heron. Do you know either of these? No, not at all. Neither of those names exist anymore. I mean, they're not used. Now they're called the Magnificent Hummingbird and the Yellow-Crowned Night Heron. 
I like the Magnificent Hummingbird. That's a great new name. It's kind of a shame that the history of the discoverer has kind of disappeared along with the old name. Although some of the changes are for the better, there was a bird that used to be called the thorn scrub. That's T-H-O-R-N-S-C-R-U-B. And now it's called Couch's Kingbird. I, I think the new name is better than the old one. But what's really great about this bird is the Latin name. It's of the genus Tyrannidae, and so the full name is Tyrannus Cucci, I believe. C-O-U-C-H-I-I. Is that Cucci or Couchy? Maybe Couchy. Maybe well, Couchy. I'm know. not quite sure if it follows the English pronunciation. In any case, I, I, I'm imagining this little vicious. It's called Tyrannus. It's this little vicious bird with like tiny forearms and big, big sharp teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tyrannus is, is king in Greek. That's Maybe right. That's, yeah. So it's yeah. the king of the couch. Ah. It's the one. It's the bird that controls the remote. <laughs> Well, nice. if you want to talk to us about bird names, you can talk to us on our discussion forum at waywardradio.org slash discussion or send us an email to words at waywardradio.org or give us a phone call 1-877-929-9673. Puzzle, puzzle, toil, and more of your calls. That's coming up on Away With Words. listening to Away With Words. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and we're joined now by the one and only, the fabulous, the quiz guy, Greg Pliska. Hello, Grant. Hello, Martha. Hello, How are you, buddy? Hello, Greg. I'm good. I'm good. I'm puzzling. You're puzzling. We, yes. knew, we knew that. Well, do you have a puzzle? I do, in fact, have oh. a puzzle. And this week's puzzle I call Initiarithmetic. Oh, math. Initiarithmetic? Well, Initiarithmetic. It's a combination of numbers and initials. Okay. Oh. I will give you a clue to a set of items of which there are a particular number, but some of the words in the clue will be replaced by their initials. So I might say there are 12 M in the Y. What words starting with M and Y could go into that sentence to make it true? Month and year. That's right. 12 months in the year. Gotcha. This puzzle is actually based on a puzzle designed by Will Shorts for Games Magazine many years ago uh, called the Equation Analysis Test. All right. Let's shoot. Let's see how this goes. Okay. Numbers and letters. Initial arithmetic. Here we go. Initial arithmetic. There are five B in the C of NY. There are five boroughs in the city of New York. Oh, wow. Well done. Insider knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, That's not fair. NY is the big clue yeah, there, absolutely. True. All right. There are 14 D in an F. 14 D, uh, 14 days in a fortnight. Yeah. Oh, very nice. good. Yeah. There are 12 S of the Z. Signs of the Zodiac. Ooh. Oh, very good. Mm. What's your yeah. sign, baby? Yeah, what is your sign, Martha? What well, can you guess? Scorpio. Right, of course. Hello. Come on. Grant, It's obvious, right? I'm a zippity doodah. Taurus. No, I'm not a Taurus. (laughs) I'm a Cancer. Oh, Ah. well, I'm a a Pisces. And does it mean anything? No. No. All right, carrying on. You don't know that? No, we know that, actually. (laughs) 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 We We have it written down here. Good authority. Okay. There are five V in the E-L. Not C-Y. Five V in the E-L, not the C-Y. Five not vowels the C-Y, not in C-Y. the English alphabet 
English Not language. English. <laughs> yeah. Or alphabet starting with L. Well, alphabet. Alphabet. And not counting Y. Not counting Y. Very good. All right. Here's another one for you. There are 54 C in a D, including the J. Cards in a deck, including the Joker. Oh, she is good. Nice. All right. 28 D in the M of F, except in L-Y. <laughs> Say it again, Tw- please. 28 D uh-huh. in the M of F. Right. Except in L-Y. 28 days, days in the month of uh-huh. February, except in leap years. Yes. Very good. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> 50 W to L your L in the S by P-S. <laughs> 50 W. To... 50 ways to leave your lover. Ah. And I don't know what the last one What's the last part? In the S by P-S. In the S I don't know. Well, where does book. that come from? Fifty ways to leave it's your lover. A movie or something, isn't it? Paul Simon. In, in, the, the, song. in, the, in the song by Paul oh. Simon. Seven hundred eighty-nine billion D in the ESP. <laughs> in the ESP. Yeah. Seven um, billion dollars mm-hmm. in the economic stimulus plan. Yes, oh, stimulus wow. package. Well package. Well, is that your economic <laughs> stimulus package, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> Here's one that's just ridiculous, but I have to say it anyway. Oh, no. There are two KFP in the W. TWD the W into TKFP and TWD. <laughs> uh, say it slowly. Más despacio, por favor. Well, the key part is the beginning there. There yeah. are two KFP in the W. TWD the W into TKFP and TWD. Two KFP in the W. Yeah. Two, two nights of... Persia in the war room. (laughs) Oh, man. One more time, Greg. Two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people in the world. TWD the W into TKFP and TWD. I don't... uh, The kind of people who... What? Those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who don't. Beautiful. Very nice. Beautiful. Who said that? I forgot. Uh, I did. Greg (laughs) Plissett. It's on my Wikipedia that was, page. This, I could see somebody sitting down, like on a car ride, or just everyone, as long as everyone was had plenty of time making up these, you know. Sure. You could do this with movie titles or song titles, right? Anything yeah. with numbers and letters. I Initial love arithmetic. It. Thanks, so. Greg. Thank you. If you've got a question about wordplay, language, grammar, slang, regional expressions, or strange old sayings, call us. The number is one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or. Pop us an email to words at waywardradio.org. And if you just can't wait, pop into our discussion forum. You'll find that at waywardradio.org slash discussion. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Patty Potter. I'm calling from Fort Worth, Texas. All right, what's up? Well, I have a question regarding my daughter's newfound habit. She's been using the word like, in my opinion, overusing the word like. Um, and I just wondered... How kids started this habit and where it came from, and better yet, how can we stop it? How old is your daughter? She's only 11. She's very bright. She's very articulate and a straight-A student. Mm-hmm. But when she starts saying the word like between every other word, I find myself getting very distracted, and I can hardly listen to what she's saying because all I hear is the word like. <laughs> 
She'll say like, uh, like, like, you know, like just in the middle of there, right? She doesn't say it like he said, like this is that, and that. Because there's a couple different kind of likes here. I'm trying to get at what kind of like. Do you have an example exactly of how she might have put it? Uh, well, you kind of nailed it. It's it's uh, goes like this. Uh, well, we were we were like at um, in the lunchroom and like we started laughing and like she got really mad like and <laughs> and then all I hear is is the word like and I I can hardly listen to the story. <laughs> it's like uh, that Gary Larson cartoon of what dogs hear. You know, <laughs> the woman's scolding the dog named Ginger, but all the dog hears is wait 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 Ginger. Exactly. And I, I must admit that when I'm around her and she starts doing it, I have to hold back because I start doing it. Uh, it seems to be contagious. Uh-huh. And then my eight-year-old starts doing it, and we're just, we're all blithering idiots by the you've, time it's You've touched on to something there, though. She's 11. She is probably looking at the behavior of girls who are much older than her and kind of adopting their mannerisms. Maybe so there's so. a really good chance that she picked this up from older girls, right? That's my guess, uh, that she's seen it uh, either on TV or um, she's been around some older girls who are doing it. Let's talk about this in two ways. You have basically two questions here. Your first one is, how does this start? Where does it come from? And your other question is, how do we stop it? The first one's pretty easy to answer. Uh, We know that this kind of like, which is called in linguistic jargon a discourse marker, dates to about the 1700s, believe it or not, it has very little to do with the Valley Girls, and they may have used it, but it spread without them, and they didn't necessarily cause the whole thing. And it actually, believe it or not, has a role in the speech. It does things. It has a function. It often has meaning, and it changes the way their words are perceived uh, by the listener, not just because it repulses you, but because it intentionally sows a little bit of doubt in there. It lets you know that what she's saying is approximate. If she's telling a story and there are a lot of likes, it's because she's not detailing exactly what was said or exactly what was done, but she's kind of given the summary or kind of gliding over some facts in order to make the narrative tighter, just kind of get to the point. Mm-hmm. So so that's one of the things that she could be doing with the like. So, so it's, it's useful. It does have its uses. I do know like, the reason I asked about her age and the reason I suggested that she was picking it from older kids, it's addictive. Once you hear this being used, you have a tendency to overuse this tool. It's your new hammer, and everything looks like a nail. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense to me. The next part, as far as getting rid of it, there are two things to do. First, wait it out. She's going to change her speech. The older she gets, the more she learns, the new friends that she gets, the the influence she gets from you and uh, and other adults in her life, she's going to change, and that, that kind of the fad of saying like will disappear eventually. The second thing to do is if it really bugs you, although I don't necessarily recommend this, tape record her. Maybe when she's not looking. And then play it back for her later. And she's probably going to be horrified at first at the sound of her voice. But when you point out the likes, she's probably going to be horrified about them, too. Anything other than nagging sounds good to me. Yeah, nagging's Mm -hmm. not going to do the trick. Don't want to do that. No, No, nagging's got no more effect on the speech of teenagers than the weather does. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I knew that much. Well, thank you. You're welcome, Patty. Thank you so much for giving us a call. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, Grant, I remember reading an interesting essay by Jeffrey Nunberg, the linguist about like, and he was saying, he he was observing some... TV interviews with, uh, I think they were high school or middle school students after a tragedy, Mm -hmm. and he noticed that nobody was using the word like. 
at all because they were recounting this thing that had happened that was very, very serious, very traumatic. And vivid. And vivid. And there wasn't this distancing. There wasn't this sort of equivocating. You know, it was it was a very, very straightforward narrative. And he, he had been thinking about the word like, and he was watching those interviews, specifically listening for like. He didn't hear it once. And that makes and that, sense to me. Right. It's exactly what we're saying. Like is used when there's some doubt about what you're saying mm-hmm. or if it's an approximation of what really happened or what was really said. But there's a show out of um, Los Angeles on KCRW. They use somehow. Somehow. When, a, when someone is trying to express an idea that's not completely clarified and they're basically articulating it for the first time in response to a question they've mm-hmm. never heard before, mm-hmm. somehow plays a large role in what they have to say because it, it makes sure that the proper doubt is sown about what they're saying. It has a function. It has a role, but it doesn't stop it from being annoying when it's overused. Mm, little Weasley word. Now I'm going to be hearing that word all the time. Thank you very much, Grant. <laughs> that's somehow. You're very welcome. <laughs> if you'd like to talk more about like and somehow and other Weasley words, try our discussion forums at Wayward Radio org slash discussion or give us a call at one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Joey. Where are you calling from? Uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Greenville, South Carolina. What's going on in Greenville? Well, I grew up in the low country of South Carolina and we had a dish there called chicken bog and I know y'all like regional dishes. Love them. And, and, uh, and this chicken bog is made of, of rice and chicken and country sausage, and lots of black pepper. And my dad used to uh, to make this for some of his workmen uh, periodically. We'd have make it in a big uh, iron pot and with a with a gas burner or a burner that came out of an old tobacco barn. And uh, like like uh, Friday at five o'clock, we'd uh, make this up and have some slaw with it and corn dodgers and light bread and Pepsi. And that was you know that was kind of a celebration for us. Mmm. I'm getting hungry. What's a corn dodger, by the way? Uh, a hush puppy. Okay. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But the whole big dish with chicken bog, is that what you called it? B-O-G? Yes, exactly. B-O-G. I have to say that I, I don't know that from, from growing up in Missouri. Don't, never heard of it. Okay. Well, even, even here in Greenville, people don't know that, that term. So, I mean, I'm only uh, 250 miles away from home. Oh, really? No. They don't know that. But and is... We also used to, Some people call it chicken perlo. There's uh, another... Similar dish called backbone and rice, which is made of pork backbone cooked in the same way. Now, perlo I have heard of, and this is because perlo has a really interesting history. Uh, have you ever heard of rice pilaf? Yes. It's it's directly related to that. Perlo and pilaf come from the same roots. Uh, it's a Turkish or Persian word, and they're all rice dishes. I mean, they're made a variety of different ways, but it comes into English probably from French and maybe from Spanish. But it's got a really rich, incredible history. Food words tend to travel pretty well, and they tend to be well recorded in in, in, in print. Okay. So. Yeah. So I've seen chicken perlo, pilaf, pillow, mm-hmm, perlu, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and and perlo uh, has a similar history, I'd bet, to bog, a chicken bog which is it's, it's mainly used in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. Okay. So it's interesting. But so chicken bog, so you get together, uh, about what do you do with the chicken? You, you fry it, you boil it? Well, you, 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 like I say, you've got to have a big iron pot. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you get the water boiling, you pour the rice in, let it cook. And then uh, in the meantime, you're preparing the chicken. And you just maybe basically put the whole chicken in there. It's been, you know, um, just the whole chicken in there, and it, and it will boil pieces. And then towards the end, you put the sausage and, and the pepper. And Joey, do you have a special name for that kind of gathering? 
A, a uh, bogathon or a no, no, <laughs> or competitions or anything like that. I mean, <laughs> no, that just just to just to get together and eat like that is just you know just there's no name for it. But it now, sounds like a good group entertainment, though. I mean, it sounds like something you do as a as with friends or family, right? It's not something that you don't get to get you go by yourself to the kitchen and make chicken bog. Well, you can, but but yeah, generally it's a it's a it's a an event like something that you would hold after work, and it's usually. Um, kind of like a, on the blue-collar end of the spectrum. Sure, like a pig roast or a fish fry. Exactly. Joey, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, um, bog, that's an interesting regional food dish. I, I did not know that. Okay. okay. I had that one to my list of, of foods to eat when I travel around the country. Well, I enjoy your show very much. All thank right. you for, well, calling for calling us today. All right, thank okay. you so much. Thanks, Take sir. care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. We could do a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week show about food words, so I hesitate to say this, but you know what? What the hey? Oh, if you've say got, it. If you've got some regional food words you'd like to share with us, by all means, give us a call. one 929 Or send us your favorite local dish to words at waywardradio.org. Oh, boy. Here come the emails. <laughs> Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. This is Debbie Kaufman. I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. What are you calling us about? Well, I grew up hearing and invariably using the phrase, good night nurse. And I never once thought about where it came from and what it meant. And so when I grew up, I use it every now and then with um, friends, and they look at me like I have three heads. What are you saying and why are you saying that? And I got to thinking, I have no idea. Well, Debbie, we love these. Um, what kind of context would you use that in? If I was frustrated instead of cussing, like say if somebody pulled out in front of me, I'd say, well, good night, nurse. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of an exclamation of surprise or disagreement or... or yes. Or, right. Yeah. You stub your toe and... Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> or disbelief even. It comes out when you, somebody says something that, that is just kind of shocking or, or not something you were expecting. Exactly. There's a fellow by the name of Eric Partridge who was a British lexicographer who collected a lot of uh, catchphrases and old sayings and a lot of slang and language. And, and his work is, is really interesting because he's just got so much that you can, so much that nobody else has for what that's worth. Sure. And he does have entries for this expression, good night nurse. <laughs> and, in, and in my own work in trying to track this phrase down and find some uses, the earliest use that I could find is 1908. And he says... That he probably dates from around 1910. So, so he and I are in the same ballpark there. Okay. And it's and it's kind of said with enthusiasm and emphasis, right? Right. Exactly. Well, good gr- night, nurse. Or good night, <laughs> nurse. Right. Yes. Yeah. Eric Partridge speculates that it really became popular during World War One because of all the soldiers who passed through the military hospital. So, it kind of became, because there were actual nurses there. Right. And there were a couple movies that came out. There was a Fatty Arbuckle movie. Right. I think there was a Mae West movie that either had songs in them by that name or the movies themselves were titled Good Night Nurse. Okay. So there were a lot of different ways in which this expression was spread. And there's a bunch of related expressions, too. So. Sure. So, Debbie, are you going to go back to your friends and tell them that you don't have three heads and, in fact... <laughs> well, yeah, they only have two heads, No, so. <laughs> <laughs> But I, it's... Nice to know that it did come from somewhere that I just didn't make it up. <laughs> no, you did not. No, you did not make didn't. it up. All no, right. It's a, well, but thank it is, you very much. It's a good old-fashioned expression, and I think you should keep using it. 
Okay, well, thank you. Right. <laughs> thank you, Debbie. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you've got more to say about good night nurse or some other old-timey expressions, you can join us on the discussion forum at waywardradio.org slash discussion or send us an email to words at waywardradio.org or give us a phone call, one eight seven seven wayword More of your calls coming up. Stay tuned. You're listening to Away With Words. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. We received an email recently from Linda in Dallas. She'd heard somebody described as a Luddite, and she wondered about that word. Now, a Luddite is somebody who's resistant to technological change. And, Grant, you've probably heard people who aren't very adept with computers call themselves Luddites, right? Yeah, they usually take a little bit of pride in it. Exactly. Oh, I don't know anything <laughs> about those. I don't. You, you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the term itself has its roots in a kind of populist rage. Picture this. It's the early 19th century in England, and skilled artisans are increasingly incensed by the changes brought about by industrialization. And among other things, they're angry about this new technology that they fear is going to cost them their jobs. If they're skilled in weaving things by hand, for example, they're afraid that these machines are going to take their jobs away. So they organize, and in 1811, they go around destroying factory machinery and terrorizing business owners. Well, their leader writes a manifesto with all their grievances and signs it with the fictitious name King Ludd, that's Mm L-U-D-D. And his followers, therefore, called themselves, wait for it, Luddites. And they kept up this rebellion for about five years, and then things like government suppression and the country's growing prosperity led them to disband. And the Luddites ended up protesting a lot of different things, but it was their opposition to labor-saving devices that really captured the public's imagination and ended up giving us the term Luddite. And Grant, I should mention that the word Luddite is almost always capitalized these days. Yeah, even though it's uh, far removed from its origins. Yeah, exactly. I've encountered a lot of people who are still that way, people who even this far into the computer revolution don't get that computers are here to stay. Unless we have an apocalypse, the computer is not going away, right? <laughs> That's right. And I think you're right that they do take a certain pride in um, you know, reading, reading things like – what are those things called? Books? Books. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The tree thing, right? Yeah, the, the, tree, the, tree, the tree thing. thing. Uh. Right. If you'd like to talk about Luddites, try our discussion forums, waywardradio.org slash discussion. Or if you've got questions about language, grammar, usage, spelling, pronunciation, anything, give us a call, 1-877-929-9673. And you can send all of your questions about language to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Beverly from Dallas, Texas. Well, hello, Beverly. Welcome. Thank you. What do you have on your mind today, Beverly? Well, there is something that has bothered me since I was a little girl, and I'm still thinking about it. My grandmother used to have a limerick or a verse that she would say to us as she would play horsey with us as we sat on her ankle, and she'd bob us up and down like we were riding a horse. And it was, Mology Buck, Mology Buck, 
How many fingers do I hold up? And I don't know who Malaji Buck is. Uh-huh. Malaji Buck? Malaji it's Buck? Ma- it's Molly. Malaji. Yes, Malaji Buck. Uh-huh. And, what? Go ahead, Beverly. Well, uh, she came from a farm outside of Joplin, Missouri. And she said she had heard this as a child herself. Now, she lived during the time when she was very little, probably around four or five. uh, She lived outside of Joplin, Missouri on a farm. Kind of interesting because she said that they would hide her when the armies were coming through during the Civil War. Her parents would hide her out in the field, and the South would come through and steal all their crops. And then the North would come back and t- and burn them out. So she had a very interesting childhood herself. Oh, my and goodness. And this, this limerick, or verse, has always bothered me about who Molly G. Buck was. I've said it with my children mm-hmm. and my grandchildren. And so we've carried it on through the family. But no one knows that my two sisters, they don't know who Molly G. Buck was, and neither did my mother. Oh, Beverly, this is marvelous. I am so delighted to hear this because, do you know, there are lots and lots and lots of versions of this rhyme. Are there really? Oh, yes. yes. Tons and tons of it. Fortunately, we've got a pretty good record of this going back at least 100 years and maybe a lot further. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Can you figure out to whom she was referring? Well, Beverly, I think the key isn't so much the Molly G. The common thread in all of these games is the part about how many fingers do I hold up. And the other words in the rhyme in other versions of the game, tend to be nonsense words. Although although Buck does tend to appear pretty frequently, right? Yeah. B-U-C-K, yeah. but not as part of a name, just kind of as a nonsense word of its own. Right. That's, oh, that's, I see. Right. That's what I was going to say is that a huge number of these games have the word Buck in them, but but they'll say things like, Mummily Buck, Mummily Buck, how many or, fingers do I hold or up? Or Mingledy, oh. Mingledy, Clap, Clap. Clap, how many fingers do I hold up? Yeah, or buckety buck, buckety buck, how many fingers yeah, do I hold up? Like, it was always so that we could ride on her leg and she could hold our hands. Uh-huh. And she would mm-hmm. go up and down. That was a big treat. Uh-huh. I'm very interested. And you say this could be lo- older than 100 years? Oh, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I've mentioned them before. There were two researchers by the name of Iona and Peter Opie, and they were British, and they did great and wonderful work in the, the language and lore of children. Iona and Peter Opie, that's O-P-I-E. Most libraries okay. will have one or more of their books. And All they right. record in a book that they published in 1969 an expression in Latin dating to the year 65. Not 1965, <laughs> but 65. Which My is heavens! Su- which is, it's surprisingly similar. And My Latin's no good, but it's... Uh, Martha, how can you do that? Bucca, bucca, quote, sunt hic. Bucca, um, bucca, quote, sunt hic. Okay, which basically means um, how many are, bucca, bucca, how many are there? And, and it so has it's, the same rhythm. And, yep, and yep. It, it talks about um, 
uh, it talks about children horsing around, and, and it's a little different because in this version, somebody climbs on somebody else's back. But uh, the, the parallels there are astonishing, and I could see how the game would change over the centuries. It's not 100% sure that they're connected, but boy, that similarity is really compelling. Yeah. Well, it sounds it. I really appreciate you giving me this knowledge. I shall call my sister, who is 86, and tell her what you have said. Beverly, right. i got to tell you, it was delightful to talk to you today. Thank well, you for calling. Th- well, thank you so much. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. We welcome your call about old sayings, expressions, rhymes, things you learned as a kid, and things you've always wanted to know. Give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. And if you remember some details about the Mology Buck game or the Buck Buck game, let us know on our discussion forum at waywardradio.org slash discussion. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is uh, Brent from San Diego. Hi, Brent. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Well, welcome to the show. What can we do for you? Well, I was wanting to know from where the expression keeping your eyes peeled comes. Uh, in particular, I'm interested in the word peeled, because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that it has something to do with the opening eyelid movement of birds of prey, and I've always had a question about it. The opening eyelid mm-hmm. movement of birds of prey. Can you? What do you mean by that? Well, um, somewhere in my mind, I'm thinking that the word peel means when a bird of prey, like a hawk or an eagle, opens their eye, it's called peeling. Hmm. And I think that that's where the expression comes from, but I think that it has an, an interesting spelling, and, and I don't recall at all what it is, and I thought maybe you guys could help me out. Hmm. Uh, you're not confusing the word peel with seal, are you? S-E-E-L? I don't believe that I am, no. Okay, I was going to say that's a term from falconry that uh, in the Middle Ages, they used, it's terrible what they did to train hawks. At, at a certain point in their training, they would stitch their eyes shut, to, I mean, to train falcons. Oh. oh, my goodness. Yeah, and they would call that sealing, S-E-E-L. Because that makes them tame, right? So they're, 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 they can be conditioned while their eyes are sewed shut, and then when you... When you unsew them or unstitch them, then they're more manageable. Right, right. They don't do that anymore, I'm told. But the, um, yeah, they lose those little hoods, don't they? To yeah, blind. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, but that's that's not ringing a bell, huh? No, that's not ringing a bell. But it's close. It does have something to do with the eyelids, right, Martha? Yeah. Well, keeping your eyes open. Um, but I don't. I'm not sure that there's a technical term from falconry or anything like that. As far as I know, it just it just originated in the 19th century as as the idea of keeping that eyelid up so that you can see what's going on. So it's like your eyelids are the peels on the fruit of your eye orbs or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, on the apple of your <laughs> eye or something. Yeah, there we go, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Brent, well, it really that... is spelled P-E-E-L then. Yes, yes. It's, it's P-E-E-L and it's not P-E-A-L. I do recall running across uh, another definition of the word peel referring to the eyelid movement of a bird of prey, and that made sense to me. If, it, if hmm. when, they, when the bird peels its eye, then, you know, it's able, you know, it's like looking like a hawk or, you know, eagle eye, something. Ah, I wonder if that's a, sort of like a back formation, like, like somebody started using that term um, to refer to the hawk after the fact, after the other expression, keep your eyes peeled with with two E's uh, came about. But I tell you what, Brent, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about nictitating membranes. 
<laughs> I gotta tell you. <laughs> Is that legal? Are we gonna get fined? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that term. It comes from a Latin word that means wink, and that's that little that little thing that goes back and forth over birds' eyes. That, that makes them more moist, right? It's not the eyelid, but it's under the eyelid. Oh well, no, it's it's over the eyelid, right, Brent? Oh, I see. I, I mean, it's yeah. over the eye, right? It's like a third eyelid, right? Oh, I see. That's my understanding. I'm not an expert in bird anatomy either, but. Um... So, Brent, I I don't have a good answer for you about peel, um, but I always love the opportunity to talk about nictitating membranes any time I can get the chance. Yeah, Brent, okay. short version is, uh, as far as we know, has nothing to do with hawks or falconry or anything like that. It simply has to mean with the eyelids being um, talked about as if they were the peel of, of, of a fruit, and you're literally peeling them back off your eyes when you open your eyes. Okay. Okay. All right, Brent. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, if there's a word that's always puzzled you, give us a call. Maybe we can help. The number is one or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. show we talked about the odd names that grandkids give to their grandparents things more creative than gramps and grammy and we asked for other examples and sure enough it seems that there are almost as many different names for grandparents as there are grandparents arlen from wisconsin wrote our granddaughter differentiated between the two sets of grandparents by location she lives in the country outside of town in Michigan, and the others in Baraboo, Wisconsin. So one set became Nana Downtown and Papa Downtown, while we became Nanaboo and Papaboo. And here's a great one from Stephanie in Dallas. My mother decided that she needed to get her votes in early. She did not want anything like Mima or Granny. She wanted something dignified and maybe even youthful-sounding. Once my nephew Gabe started babbling and assigning sounds to people or objects, we knew the time was near. Upon his arrival at my mother's house one day, he looked at my mother, grinned wide, and uttered, Nanu, yep, pronounced just like Mork would say it. We, the grown-ups, instantly dissolved in laughter. Therefore, to this day, 15 years later, my mother's distinctive name is Nanu for all her grandchildren. That's a great story. Isn't that great? It just goes to show you, Grant, that it's not worth worrying in advance about what your grandkids are going to call you. No, they've got minds of their own. They do. <laughs> and we'd love for you to give us a piece of your mind. The number's one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or email us, words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Joyce. I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia. Well, hi, Joyce. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. What's on your mind today? I wondered about a phrase, don't let anyone get your goat. I know this story that my parents had told me, but I have been unable to find any place else where it's written down. We would love to hear that story. The uh, story is set in the early 1800s, and it's about a farmer. He lives in a village that's in the heart of Sicily, and in the fall of every year, tradition dictates that Two different families have to give up one of their animals to the church. The short of it is that they finally decide on this goat, Nina the goat, to give, and he is taking the goat to the church when he becomes angry because it's been a very tough year and they don't have very much. And uh, the, uh, he hears a voice. We don't know if it's a goat or someone else. And the goat tells him not to get angry, basically, but to get smart. And when he gets there, he uh, says, you know, 
should my goat happen to get free, uh, you know, my family would come and work at the church one day out of the month every year. And uh, the priest takes us all in, and then ultimately the goat does escape, and they work in the church, and the farmer goes through life learning not to let people get his goat. Hmm. And you say that's from where? Sicily. Sicily. My father was born in Sicily, and my mother's parents were born in Sicily. And one of the phrases they like to use a lot when my brother and I would get upset is, don't let anyone get your goat. i got to say something about that story, though. It's almost a little too pat, if you know what I mean. I never heard it. I didn't find anything else that was written anywhere except some vague references to goats being kept with horses. Yeah, now that's the story that I've seen floating around most often, that horses, thoroughbreds, tend to be calmed by having a small animal in the stall with them. And having grown up in Kentucky, I've talked with people in the horse industry, and indeed they say that a lot of people keep a dog with a horse or a cat with a horse or a goat with a horse just to kind of have a little companion. And and the idea of that story is that if you got your goat taken away from you, then you'd be be at loose ends, right, at sixes and sevens. Right. But Well, uh, uh, when I looked at that, they said that there was uses of that phrase prior to when that was a popular or, you know, a common, I guess, thing to, to do. But I really felt I didn't find anything pretty conclusive. So I, I've often wondered if there was any other explanation. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems that goat has been a slang term for anger. And um, back in the early 1900s, it was in a book about uh, prison life as meaning anger. And that makes more sense to me. Don't let anybody get your goat. Don't anybody get your, let you get your ire up. Right. Yeah, Joyce, I th- I would agree with Grant on this. It just seems like like sometimes the the more elaborate those stories are, the more suspicious we should be of them. And I think this is probably one of those cases. Although it's a good story. It's particularly the case when we can't find the original story in print anywhere because stories don't travel with that kind of detail for that long. Right. That makes sense. The oral transmission of stories is tends to be fraught with all kinds of complications and corruptions. Yeah, so I guess the bottom line here is that nobody's really sure, but I'm putting my money on the, on the um, goat is anger, sort of goading even. Yeah, you, right. you will sometimes, occasionally, very rarely find people miswrite this as get one's goad, G-O-A-D. And I'm not suggesting that is an origin story. It's just, it's just how some people have reanalyzed the mm-hmm. expression in order to kind of try to make sense of why there's a goat in it at all. Well, Joyce, well, I, Joyce, I appreciate your efforts trying to track it down. Oh yeah, I sure. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I don't know is a is a is a really great answer because it's better than just making stuff up. True. Thank you so much for your call, Joyce. We're we're glad to be of some assistance. I'll talk to you again. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. We'd love to help you with your origin stories. Give us a call one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. That's one eight seven seven Wayward, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. That's our show for this week. Support for our program comes from Mosey Online Backup. Got data? Visit mozy.com. If you didn't get on the air today, you can leave us a message anytime. The number's 1-877-929-9673. Or email your questions to words at waywardradio.org. Or join the conversation right now on our discussion forum. You'll find it at waywardradio.org slash discussion. Stephanie Levine is our senior producer. Our technical director and editor is Tim Felton. 
Tim also engineered our theme music. Kurt Conan produced it. We've had production help this week from Michael Bagdasian and Josette Herdell. From Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. And from the Argo Network in New York City, I'm Grant Barrett. Auf Wiedersehen. Cheers. Let's call the whole thing off. Yes, you like potato. I like potato. Hey, listeners, we have a favor to ask. We'd love for you to fill out our listener survey at gum.fm slash words. Your feedback is crucial. It's quick, and it helps us make our show even better. It shapes our show, helps us plan, and ensures we're bringing you the content you love. That's gum.fm slash words. Thanks for being a part of what we do. Thank you.